Welcome to episode 29 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the security event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham from the 30th of April until the 2nd of May 2024. Security Matters is once again serving as the lead media partner for the exhibition. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Turning to the news first of all, and echo support for police alarm response in intruder and hold-up alarm activations is now running at a rate of over 40,000 incidents per annum. That means these incidents have secured a speedier and effectively prioritised response, saving typically between one and four minutes, as estimated by the Metropolitan Police Service. Since launching back in April 2021, Echo Connectivity Signalling Intruder and Hold-Up Alarm Activations to the Police now serves 11 Echo-connected police services and 300,000-plus police-approved alarm systems, in turn protecting sites and premises alike. Echo's influence as a deterrent against intruder and hold-up crime is on the rise. In 2022, Essex Police, the Metropolitan Police Service, the Avon and Somerset Constabulary, the City of London Police and also Northumbria Police became echo-connected. Early on in 2023, they were joined by the Bedfordshire Police, Kent Police, the Harbordshire Constabulary, the Cambridgeshire Constabulary, Northamptonshire Police and also Greater Manchester Police. According to police service estimates, ECHO markedly reduces response times to confirmed alarm activations, saving anything up to four minutes once any of the 37 ECHO-connected approved alarm receiving centres validates alarm signals. ECHO automatically transfers alarm activation signals from the ARCs to police control rooms, replacing legacy manual voice calling procedures and accelerating the stand-down of responders where an alarm may be discovered as having been false prior to police arrival, in all cases helping to greatly improve public safety and policing effectiveness. Kieran Irving, Deputy Chief Constable at the Durham Constabulary and also the National Police Chief Council's lead for the Security Systems Group, commented, having a direct impact on policing deployment and effectiveness at a rate of 40,000 incidents every year is no mean feat. The inroads in police control room efficiencies and police responders' impact at the scene of intruder and hold-up incidents in those 11 echo-connected force areas is quite remarkable. Other police forces looking closely at how they can become echo-connected are encouraged to do so at the earliest possible opportunity. In all, up to 1 million residential and commercial users, including retail outlets of professionally installed intruder and hold-up alarm systems, installed by National Security Inspectorate or Security Systems and Alarms Inspection Board approved installers, are set to benefit as more police forces across the UK become echo-connected during 2023 and into 2024. Martin Harvey, the founding director of ECHO, has observed, enabling a speedier and more effective alarm response to over 40,000 police response incidents each year is testimony to the impact ECHO is having across the 11 connected police forces. Looking ahead, the countrywide impact is set to be truly remarkable. It absolutely justifies the NPCC's vision and the security industry's commitment to delivering improved security in collaboration with the police, assisting efficiency in the deployment of police resources, faster police response and crime deterrence. Harvey went on to comment, ECHO now supports intruder and hold-up police response alarm systems at over 300,000 residential, commercial and public sector sites and buildings, thereby offering homeowners and those responsible for commercial and publicly operated properties of all sizes a greater degree of assurance when it comes to speedier and more effective policing response. ECHO is standing by to engage with any police force that wishes to prioritise its ECHO connection. For their part, approved installers are encouraged to check with their ARC providers regarding ECHO support for their customers' intruder and hold-up alarm systems.
Industry regulator the Security Industry Authority has issued a comprehensive response addressing the alarming issues raised by the BBC's Phylon 4, the award-winning current affairs documentary series, in its recent investigation focused on training in the security sector and, in particular, the delivery of SIA license-linked training itself. The findings of Phylon 4's investigation process, the results of which were originally broadcast by Radio 4 at 5pm on the 2nd of October, were reported on the BBC News website the following day under the headline Gig Safety Fears After Trainee Stewards Helped to Cheat. According to the BBC News report compiled by Kate West and Melanie Stewart-Smith, an undercover reporter paid an extra sum of money to complete what is a mandatory six-day training course in just a day and a half, in the process missing crucial instruction in first aid procedures. Attending one course, the reporter was told to complete timesheets for all six days and was also fed the answers to multiple-choice questions. In total, Phylon 4 approached 12 companies offering Level 2 SIA door supervisor training courses for sums of money of between £200 and £300. The BBC suggests that many such companies advertise near 100% pass rates and also employ phrases such as no pass, no fee. Four of those firms approached offered the undercover journalist from Phylon 4 shortened training courses, which is very much against the regulations. Successful completion of the six-day training programme allows individuals to apply for an SIA licence, which is then granted if subsequent identity and criminal record checks are conducted and found to be satisfactory in terms of the end results derived by that process. Covert filming was carried out by the undercover reporter. Some of the footage obtained is included within the report on the BBC News website, with the report suggesting that individuals are able to fraudulently obtain work licences after attending sham training courses. Responding to the issues raised by the BBC's Phylon 4 programme, the SIA has commented, The behaviours captured in this documentary are both shocking and disappointing. It throws shade on parts of a training industry that's relied upon to play its part in public safety. The industry regulator continued, We have launched an investigation into the findings of the undercover operation conducted by the BBC's Phylon 4. We are working with the qualifications regulator in England, i.e. Ofqual, and also awarding organisations it regulates to further examine the issues highlighted by Phylon 4. The Ofqual-approved awarding organisations have confirmed to the SIA that the training providers featured have been suspended pending further investigation. In addition, the SIA has suspended the licence of one individual featured in the documentary and referred the footage that indicates criminality to the Metropolitan Police Service. The SIA has said, We expect any training provider found to be involved in malpractice to face the appropriate sanctions. The SIA has also explained, We will be closely assessing Phylon 4's materials to determine what more action the SIA can take in relation to the individuals captured in the footage. As we've done previously with Phylon 4, we will ask for full disclosure of all the materials gathered in the making of this documentary to assist further with our inquiries and those of other agencies. Where qualifications that have been awarded by the awarding organisations are shown to be unsound and are withdrawn, the SIA has affirmed that this will result in the suspension of a given SIA licence. The SIA, of course, is the statutory regulator for the private security industry, but it doesn't regulate qualifications and has no powers regarding training delivery. Powers to regulate qualifications by approval, monitoring and the sanctioning of awarding organisations are vested in the qualifications regulators themselves. The SIA has pointed out that the organisation is quote-unquote absolutely committed to protecting members of the public and raising standards across the private security industry using the powers at its disposal. The regulator conducts its own unannounced visits to training providers. Indeed, 200 such visits have been carried out since 2022. As a direct result, three training providers have been shut down. These unannounced visits will now continue. 
On that note, the SIA has commented, good training providers are happy to see the SIA and welcome the action we are taking to ensure those not following the rules are rooted out. If there are faults found, they are referred to the relevant awarding organisations. We will continue to work with the qualifications regulators and awarding organisations across the UK to ensure that all allegations of training malpractice are fully investigated. On top of that, the regulator will also consider using its own prosecution powers in appropriate circumstances. The SIA is fully determined to ensure poor practices are rooted out and, in parallel, actively supports the majority of training businesses who, quote-unquote, operate to good standards. Longer term, outlined the SIA, we will continue to work with the qualifications regulators, the UK government and other partners to ensure that current regulatory arrangements in the training sector are fit for purpose with regards to the private security industry and that we make the necessary interventions where possible. Following the tragic terrorist attack at the Manchester Arena in 2017, the SIA has undergone major changes in terms of its regulatory response. Frontline resources have been stepped up, as have dedicated inspection and investigation activities. Working practices have changed and the regulator has engaged extensively with the police service and other agencies in an ongoing bid to protect the public and support public safety. The regulator's response has also included the strengthening of the entry-level qualifications and new unannounced visits to training providers where any malpractice or concerns are forwarded to the awarding organisations. In the last financial year, upwards of 170,000 qualifications were awarded. For context, in the same reporting year, some 70 cases concerning training were raised. 44 of them were against training companies and 26 were centred on allegations of individual malpractice. Ultimately, concluded the SIA, we need evidence to take action alongside our partners. Where people have concerns regarding potential training malpractice, we encourage them to report it to us. Guidance is available on the SIA's gov.uk website about where concerns over training malpractice can indeed be reported. Our first guest on this edition of the Security Matters podcast is Michelle Cradolfa, National Manager and Internet of Things Technical Officer for Secured by Design at Police Crime Prevention Initiatives. Michelle boasts extensive knowledge of the cybercrime, cybersecurity and Internet of Things landscapes, duly leading on Secured by Design's Secure Connected Device Accreditation Scheme. Graduating from Middlesex University with a Master's Degree in Cybercrime and Digital Investigation, Michelle also holds a Master's Degree in Criminology from the University of Sydney and has previously worked for both Interpol and the Police Digital Security Centre. During our interview, Michelle focuses on the Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Act as well as the aforementioned Secure Connected Device Accreditation Scheme. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. First of all, could you give us a brief introduction to yourself, your career to date, and also the remit of your current role? Sure. Um, first, thank you, Ryan, for having me on this podcast. So just a little bit about myself first. I am a Swiss national uh, with a multicultural background, and I'm therefore very, very lucky to be able to speak a couple of languages, um, which include German, Swiss German, Spanish, which is also my mother tongue, and a little bit of French, but that's a bit rusty. I knew from a very, very um, early on in my life that I wanted to study in the field of criminology, and it's always been an interest and passion of mine. So it was very easy to um, decide that I wanted to attend the University of Sydney in Australia, where I achieved both a Master's of Criminology and a Bachelor of Social Legal Studies. And um, after that, in 2014, I then became an intern at Interpol with the research and innovation team within their cyber and innovation outreach directorate. And thanks to this internship, actually, it sparked an interest in cybercrime and cybersecurity, which wasn't really on my radar, um, funnily enough. But Ultimately, it did solidify my wish to pursue a career in this field. 
and it resulted me in moving here to London. And it's actually here where I graduated with a master's in cybercrime and digital investigations in 2019. And very soon after that, I joined um, Police Crime Prevention Initiatives, or Police CPI, who run the Secured by Design Initiative, first as a cyber development officer with the um, Police Digital Security Center within Police CPI, and then as the Internet of Things uh, technical officer at Secured by Design before being promoted into my current role as National Manager for Secured by Design. And obviously at SBD or Secured by Design, um, we are the official police security initiative within uh, Police CPI, which focuses on improving um, building security and surroundings to ensure that we can create safe spaces for work, living and um, anything else. And as part of that, um, I have my managerial duties uh, with a fantastic team of development officers who mainly do the most <laughs> most of the work. Um, but within all of the, the remits that we do at Secured by Design, I'm also the lead for our Secure Connected Device Accreditation Scheme, which covers the Internet of uh, Things connected products and services, because mainly SBD has focused on physical security products. So, of course, with the change in technology, um, IoT has now also become a major part within SPD. The government has recently introduced the Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Act, of course. Could you briefly explain this legislation for us and what it requires of today's companies? Yeah, so I think a bit of background might be helpful to us how the act was introduced as well. So in 2018, the government published the Code of Practice for Consumer Internet of Things Security in order to tackle the issues of um, security of IoT connected products. And this was developed uh, by the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology, which is DSIT. And it sets a benchmark of best practices for manufacturers to uh, to follow, sorry, when developing these IoT products for the UK market. And it outlines 13 best practices as well. And this was heavily influenced by the ETSI-EN 303-645, which is a European standard that outlines these baseline requirements in respect of cybersecurity for the consumer IoT products, as well as any other IoT-related standards that, are, that is included. And the Etsy standard is not only a European standard, but it's also recognized internationally, even as far as Singapore, for example. But the UK is the very, very first country to mandate it. And the reason also is because there wasn't any regulation in place to protect consumers from cyber harm when they're using these connectable consumer products. The government introduced the Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Act, or in short, the PSTI Act. So that's why they introduced it. And the PSTI Act requires manufacturers, importers and distributors to ensure that minimum security requirements are met in relation to IoT products that are available to consumers here in the UK. And it also provides a very robust regulatory framework that can adapt and remain effective in the face of rapid technology advancements, the ever-evolving techniques employed by malicious actors, and of course, the broader international regulatory landscape. So the PSTI Act uh, covers the following three main security features that manufacturers need to implement. The first one is to, um, they're not allowed to have universal default passwords because this makes it easier for consumers to configure their devices um, securely and prevents them from being hacked by cyber criminals. 
The second is that um, IoT devices need to have a vulnerability disclosure policy because manufacturers will now have um, a plan on how to deal with these weaknesses when it's being reported and weaknesses in software as well. This also means that these weaknesses are are likely to be addressed properly and in a timely manner as well. And the third is uh, IoT devices will need to uh, disclose how long they will receive software updates because this shows that software updates are being created and released to maintain the security of the device throughout its um, declared lifespan. Because the reality is that many IoT products are not produced with security being at the forefront. And uh, to date, we have seen that only about one in five manufacturers embed basic security requirements in um, these IoT products, even though consumers might think products are secure, when in reality, they're not. And For example, these smart devices are still being produced to this day with default passwords uh, that are very commonly used and known, such as the word password or uh, 12345 or admin, any easily obtainable password that you can find online as well. And for hackers, they're having a field day with this because they're aware of this and they will regularly exploit this vulnerability as well. So that's why, um, as a starter, these three security features have been mandated within the PSTI Act. Um, However, we know that there are plans to expand the Act to include the other 10 provisions of the 13, but this is just a starter to address and hopefully improve the IoT security within the UK. What sort of products are we talking about when we say Internet of Things connected products, Michelle? Internet of Things is really defined as a network of physical objects or things that can be embedded with sensors, softwares, and other technologies for the purpose of connecting and exchanging data with other devices and systems over the internet and, you know, any other communication networks like mobile networks, 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, etc. And so this law particularly applies to all consumer IoT products, which um, can include but is not limited to Uh, For example, connected safety relevant products like smart door locks, connected home automation and alarm systems, IoT base stations and hubs where multiple devices can connect to, smart home assistants like an uh, an Alexa or or Google, and then um, smartphones, smoke detectors, connected cameras, any smart fridges, washers, freezers, coffee machines, etc. So all in that sphere. The date by which companies must comply with the legislation is the 29th of April 2024, which is only a few months away now. What are the penalties for non-compliance? The consequences are quite hefty, um, especially when it comes to the monetary penalties. As mentioned, the government has now mandated that businesses will need to comply with the new um, security requirements outlined in the PSTI Act from the 29th of April 2024. And the robust regulatory framework within the law contains an enforcement regime with both civil and criminal sanctions aimed at preventing insecure products from being made available within the UK market. Now, the enforcement uh, regime enables the government to take a number of um, actions against these companies who are not compliant, and that includes enforcement notices, so um, compliance notices, stop notices, recall notices to be issued. There's also forfeiture of stock 
which is in the possession or control of any manufacturer, importer um, of the products. And then, of course, I think one of the more heavier penalties is the monetary penalties where the fines are in line with GDPR. So this means that either £10 million or 4% of the company's qualifying global revenue um, needs to be paid, whichever is greater out of those two. And I think you know, the reason these fines in particular are this high is that the issue is very serious and we all have a, um, a part to play in improving IoT securities and companies with IoT products now have the responsibility to ensure they follow these basic requirements to help protect their consumers in the UK. To any businesses producing these consumer connectable products that are listening, um, mark the 29th of April 2024 in your calendars and make sure that you're compliant. And could you give us some examples of where vulnerabilities in consumer Internet of Things products have led to criminals accessing products and systems? Absolutely. And uh, I could, I think, talk your ears off about all of the different examples of IoT attacks that have happened. However, there's a few that I like to mention because they really showcase perfectly how different everyday IoT products can be used to either target a specific product, system or person for various malicious reasons and even products that you may not even think could be vulnerable to you. So, for example, the first one is a classic fish tank case where a North American casino had a fish tank situated in their lobby and that tank had a smart thermometer in place which controlled the feeding and the temperature of the tank and it was connected to the casino's Wi-Fi. So the hackers unfortunately found a vulnerability within the thermometer and managed to hack into it then hopped onto the Wi-Fi network of the casino, which ultimately led them into the casino's database of high rollers that contained all of the personal and financial information. And this is a classic case of when hackers are trying to gain very sensitive information. Then on the other hand, in the UK, um, there was a man who was jailed in 2018 for IoT-related abuse after being found guilty of eavesdropping on his estranged partner through a microphone that was mounted on the wall. So it was a smart tablet, which was used to control the heating and lights in their home. And sadly, this is a perfect example of how an IoT device can be used to cyberstalk and harass another person, which is another type of cybercrime that exists. And showcases as well that any person can use an IoT device for malicious purposes, especially if that product is so easily used that anyone can hack into it. And then on a bigger scale, for example, we have another smart heating system that was um, installed in a residential building in Finland, and it's suffered a cyber attack on their smart heating system. And again, it was due to a vulnerability in the software. And that caused the warm water and heating to be shot off completely for a week during the winter months for the residents in that building. So imagine if you could have an attack like that just on a building, but then on a whole country if products are being built insecurely and installed across the nation as well. It's quite scary to think about that. Just one more case as well, just to because this is one of my favorite examples to use because it's so out of left field, a little bit risque, and but perfectly showcases that any, and when I mean any products, is really any internet connected products that even the ones you didn't think of could be smart, can be vulnerable if not built securely. And that is of the classic IoT chastity cage or belt. So for example, the security researchers that came across this found that uh, manufacturers of an IoT chastity cage 
had left an API, which is an application programming interface, and that's the software intermediary that allows two devices to talk to each other, that the API was exposed and gave hackers a chance to take control of these devices, which is exactly what happened. And a victim had received a message from um, hackers demanding a payment of about 500 pounds or so, but in Bitcoin, to unlock the device. Uh, And the victim had realized that the device was definitely locked and couldn't gain access to it. But thankfully, no one was wearing it at the time. But it's things like that that we need to think of that anything that you have in your house or in your business that is connected to the internet can be vulnerable. So it's important to uh, make a conscious decision about what products we're buying and whether or not these products have gone through the level of testing and certification that they should be uh, going through. And lastly, Michelle, how can Secured by Design's own Secure Connected Device Accreditation assist companies on the road to compliance? So the Secure by Design's um, Secure Connect Device Accreditation Scheme uh, was developed in consultation with DSIT, and the scheme helps companies get their products appropriately assessed against all 13 provisions of the ETSI EN 303-645 standard, which is influenced by the PSTI Act, and is also a requirement that goes beyond the government's legislation so that companies can not only demonstrate their compliance with the legislation, also be ready when the legislation expands to include the other provisions, but it also most importantly helps protect themselves, their products and customers. The process, the way it works for us is that the Secure Connected Device has an IoT device assessment, which identifies the level of risk associated with the IoT device and its ecosystem. So if it has an app, a cloud-based platform or server, etc., and Based on that uh, assessment, we provide recommendations on the appropriate certification routes uh, with one of our SPD-approved certification bodies that they can go and get certified. And once they've achieved third-party testing and independent certification for a product, the company can then apply to become SPD members if they're not yet, and um, the product will receive the SPD Secure Connected Device Accreditation, which is a very unique and recognizable accreditation that will highlight products having achieved the relevant IoT standards and certification. And compliance with the Secure Connected Device Accreditation sends a very, very clear message to the wider industry of the importance of IoT security and companies accredited to this SPD standard will uh, lead by example and be at the forefront as well of this IoT revolution. And in doing so, will also keep their customers and the public safe from the risk of a cyber breach. And as we know, the Secure Connected Device Accreditation is the only way for companies to obtain police recognition for their security of their IoT products in the UK. And if anyone wants to find out more about the Secure Connected Device Accreditation or have a look at what products have already achieved that accreditation, uh, feel free to visit our website. Returning to the news now, and 19 Group is celebrating the fact that a record number of security professionals attended the International Security Expo 2023 and the co-located International Cyber Expo, both of which ran at London's Olympia on the 26th and 27th of September. 
Upwards of 9,000 security professionals from more than 70 different countries visited the International Security Expo 2023, creating a buzz throughout the Grand Hall at Olympia, with packed conference theatres and busy exhibitor stands showcasing the latest tech innovations designed to protect people, businesses, critical national infrastructure and nations. With more than 300 security brands showcasing thousands of the industry's newest products and solutions, attendees were afforded an unmissable opportunity for in-person demonstrations, helping them to understand how emerging products and solutions can meet their current and future challenges. International Security Expo is the only publicly accessible security event where attendees can meet with and hear from the wide-ranging UK government departments and agencies responsible for national security. For the second year running, delegates benefited from a keynote presentation delivered by Tom Tugendat, the Minister of State for Security, wherein the Conservative MP for Tunbridge and Morling discussed the nation's counter-terrorism strategy, the security challenges posed by the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, and also expanded on the government's key security priorities. International Security Expo once again offered an excellent lineup of educational content, which included presentations delivered as part of the Global Counter-Terror and Serious and Organised Crime Summit, the International Security Conference, and the International Risk and Resilience Conference. It was standing room only for all of these top-level conference programmes, in fact. There were sessions on the draft version of the recent Terrorism Protection of Premises Bill, commonly known as Martin's Law, now making its way through the Houses of Parliament. Delegates heard from the most senior figures involved in piecing together their proposed legislation, alongside those who will be implementing and enforcing its contents. The Global Counter-Terror and Serious and Organised Crime Summit offered talks delivered by representatives from the National Counter-Terrorism Security Office, the Office for Homeland Security and UK Defence and Security Exports, itself part of the Department for Business and Trade, alongside professionals representing the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime and Microsoft. The programme included an extensive examination of how the UK is addressing and can better combat terrorism, plus an in-depth look at the major serious and organised crime-focused issues. Abu Ahmed, the new head of the Home Office's Joint Security and Resilience Centre, updated the industry on its priorities, while day one at conference ended with a panel session on the realities of terror, featuring victims discussing their experiences and the impact it's exerted on their lives, as well as that of their families and friends. This theme continued in the International Security Conference, with a panel session on the aforementioned Martin's Law, featuring campaigners Fegan Murray OBE and Nick Aldworth, who were joined by Debbie Bartlett, Deputy Director for Protect and Prepare at the Home Office, Tracy Reinhold from Everbridge and Barry Minnett of Mighty. Conference also played host to a seminar on the impact of inclusion and belonging in the security industry, chaired by Satya Rai from the International Professional Security Association and Securitas, and featuring Chris Hutchinson, the mother of security operative Gabby Hutchinson, who sadly passed away aged 23 following the Brixton Academy incident in December 2022. Demonstrating the International Security Expo's invaluable role in facilitating new product launches, many exhibitors took the opportunity to unveil their latest innovations, sharing all new technologies and refreshed solutions with a packed audience of vetted international buyers. Launches included AppStack Systems' next-generation screening technology, the Human Security Scanner, which is a smart solution that detects explosives, weapons, pyrotechnics, narcotics and cash on people and in bags to provide better capability on a more cost-effective basis. It actively increases the speed, agility and effectiveness of the scanning process, while in parallel dramatically improving the overall screening experience. Lineo Systems UK used the Expo as a platform to showcase its ClearPass CI partial body scanner for the first time. 
which is described as the perfect solution for prisons and borders, as well as many other areas where people scanning is necessary to check for stuffed or swallowed contraband. This solution boasts rapid image acquisition and scan times. The worlds of physical and cybersecurity converged across the two days at Olympia. In only its second year, the co-located International Cyber Expo played host to circa 6,500 visitors, which is up by 35% on 2022. Bigger and bolder this time around, the International Cyber Expo allowed visitors to immerse themselves in the latest innovations and cutting-edge technologies that are essential for protection in the digital domain. The exhibition floor was packed with many leading global cybersecurity solution providers, while the Global Cyber Summit harboured a range of noted cyber experts, providing essential updates on this critical and evolving sector. Alongside a jam-packed conference programme, the event also played host to the Metropolitan Police Cyber Escape Room and Grab the Mic Women in Cyber, the latter being a two-and-a-half-hour networking event aimed at inspiring, educating and connecting the incredible women and their allies operating within the cybersecurity industry. Two award-winning demonstrations also made a return appearance. The Crisis Cast Real-Time Cyber Attack Demonstrator and Cyber Griffin's National Cybersecurity Centre Certified Tabletop Exercise. These live demonstrators are an essential way of bringing the cyber threat to life for attendees at the event. Speaking about the International Security Expo 2023, event director Rachel Shattuck from the 19 Group said, It was fantastic to see Olympia packed for both days. We've received phenomenal feedback from our exhibitors, in particular about the quality of visitors in attendance this year. This extends to the VIP programme, which hosted some of the country's most influential security leaders, alongside our international delegations programme, which saw senior security buyers from around the world visiting the event to source the latest products and solutions. International Security Expo and International Cyber Expo returned to London's Olympia on the 24th and 25th of September 2024. For further information, visit www.internationalsecurityexpo.com. The Public Sector Fraud Authority saved taxpayers £311 million in its first year of operation. That's according to figures revealed by Baroness Neville Rolfe, Minister for the Cabinet Office, at a meeting of the International Public Sector Fraud Forum. The figure far exceeds the original savings target of £180 million, which was set when the operation was launched last year. The £311 million figure is made up of a variety of projects led by the Public Sector Fraud Authority that help public sector organisations to prevent, identify and recover public money lost to fraud, including the use of advanced artificial intelligence and data analytics through partnerships with leading private sector businesses, among them the tech unicorn Quantexa. The National Fraud Initiative is an exercise that works with more than 1,000 public bodies to compare sets of data against other records in order to identify discrepancies that may be evidence of fraud. Further, counter-fraud flags refers to instances when the government shares intelligence with lenders to help them recover stolen money. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced the creation of the Public Sector Fraud Authority in March last year, while serving as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Following intensive joint working between the Cabinet Office and His Majesty's Treasury, the Public Sector Fraud Authority launched just five months later in August. Baroness Neville Rolfe revealed just how much the Public Sector Fraud Authority had saved during its first year at the aforementioned meeting of the International Public Sector Fraud Forum, which was hosted by the UK Government in Central London. The figure will be officially published in the Public Sector Fraud Authority's first annual report. The International Public Sector Fraud Forum was first convened by the UK Government in 2018. It aims to share best practice to help combat public sector fraud in the Five Eyes nations, i.e. Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United States and also the UK. The UK Government has hosted an in-person meeting of the International Public Sector Fraud Forum four times now. The latest gathering marked the occasion of the first meeting since the pandemic and was attended by delegates from government agencies and law enforcement across the Five Eyes nations. A 
approximately 70 delegates, made up of international experts and domestic counter-fraud professionals from across the public sector, attended a keynote address by Baroness Neville Rolfe at the Imperial War Museum. Baroness Neville Rolfe stated, The £311 million savings is a big win for taxpayers. It shows the public sector fraud authority is delivering on its mission to transform the way in which we fight fraud. Every pound stolen by fraudsters is one pound less spent on schools, hospitals and other vital public services. Baroness Neville Rolfe continued, It was fitting to reveal the achievement at a meeting of the International Public Sector Fraud Forum. The Five Eyes nations have a proud history of working together to tackle big challenges, and fraud is no exception. Led by the UK government and the Public Sector Fraud Authority, our allies are setting the gold standard in the field of counter-fraud. Mark Cheeseman, OBE, the CEO of the Public Sector Fraud Authority, concluded, The Public Sector Fraud Authority was created to take action on fraud. The results in our first year show our commitment to that task. The close relationships we enjoy with our international partners have been integral to this. Together, we can exert a far bigger impact on those who attack our public services for their own gain. Our second guest on this episode is Steve Howarth, CEO at Vmotion, the specialist in live, real-time wireless video transmission and compression for mobile video surveillance over GPRS, 5G, Wi-Fi, satellite networks and broadband. The company's wireless video transmission products realise live video surveillance solutions for any type of mobile or rapid deployment CCTV, be it temporary or permanent. Steve began his role at Vmotion in April 2020. He's a master's graduate of Teesside University, where he concentrated on the subject of computer-aided graphical technology applications. He previously served as an account director for Workplace Systems and as director of land to mobile a new business startup. Steve is also the CEO of Teleware PLC. On this occasion, Steve turns his attentions towards the security of today's CCTV regimes. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. The subject of security for captured CCTV images is gaining a good deal of press coverage at the moment. Do you believe the risks involved are fully understood? For people to assess the risks properly, they need to do two things, I believe. So one will be to measure the likelihood of something happening and two is measure the impact of it if it does. Uh, so I think that the likelihood of anything happening is probably more linked to global politics than it is to technology itself. Uh, and if you look at what's been going on in the political landscape over the last 12 to 18 months, then I think you'd have to come down to the side of that the risk is has risen quite considerably, to be fair. Um, I also think that the BBC Panorama programme that was on recently did push the issue right to the front of people's minds again. But I don't think that they investigated the full portfolio of risks. So the part that they did cover was probably the most commonly understood and, to be fair, the easiest one to guard against. So, no, I don't think the most likely security scenario is fully understood at all. However, I would say by putting the subject into the spotlight, I think that a lot of people will be reevaluating the risks and it will have increased the awareness of some of the issues. So I think it'd be probably complacent for anybody to not have at least a plan in place, even if that plan was to just accept the risk and move on. But it's certainly not something that can just be ignored. Isn't it simply a case of making sure that your cameras are updated and also that the network's secure? Yeah, well, I'd say that's the minimum that everyone should be doing. But from our experience, that's what most do already. And I think that was one of the things that was quite misleading in the programme. Uh, and has caused some of the bigger issues to be overlooked, to be honest. And what I mean by that is the the problem you have with security cameras is that you have to put them on your network and the need to be able to talk to other devices across the network, such as the operation centre or 
wherever you want these camera feeds to be viewed. And the, the points raised by the BBC were vulnerabilities that have already been fixed. So by updating the software, managing the network properly, then those risks can be nullified somewhat. But the bigger potential security issue is that of a camera having the ability to call home and become under the control of some malicious entity. Then the problem is actually not just the external, but internal to the network because it's lying within your network. So the scenario is a little like having to deal with locking your door when an intruder is already in your house. It's not really going to help in this scenario. Securing the network from the outside in doesn't really help at all. And if someone were to act maliciously, Steve, what might be the outcome? Well, a camera nowadays is not just a a dumb camera. It's a network connected computer with eyes and ears. And as well as the issues that were well documented by the BBC, I think being able to see or hear what is going on is, is fine. And that's one element. But also it has the ability to potentially act as a device that can connect and gain access to other pieces of data on the network, which can then initiate very serious consequences. So, for example, that could be leaking or deleting video, customer data or sensitive organised information. If you're viewing it from a risk profile, I don't think anyone can say that the possible impact is just high. It probably is and could be potentially devastating. And what do you feel is the best way in which to make a surveillance regime secure, Steve? Well, I'd recommend using something like the vMotion video firewall, which acts like a virtual cage to isolate the camera from the network. Uh, By only allowing the camera to talk to the video firewall and then for the internal servers to talk to and authenticate with the firewall itself, it's the only really totally secure method to eliminate the risk of the camera being able to do damage from the inside out or indeed from outside of the network. We have this powerful technology built into all our all of our encoders but to help end users with the legacy non-NDAA compliant camera systems that they've got in place today to tackle this issue then we've recently introduced the video firewall as a low-cost standalone unit to tackle this. Will an installed firewall have any impact on the picture quality do you think? No, it doesn't actually re-encode the video itself, so um, there's zero impact on picture quality, latency or any functionality of the camera itself. And what's next on the horizon, Steve? Do you see this problem disappearing anytime soon? (laughs) Well, whilst we're experts in video transmission, I'm not an expert on international politics, but what I can say is I don't think it's a risk that's going away anytime soon. I think it'd be naive to think that it just won't happen. Um, And as the US and other states put more pressure on the Chinese for various things, then the chances that they would move to do something continues to rise. It's something that I don't think helps any of our industry much. And I wish it wasn't something that all, all our customers and partners had to deal with. But sadly, we all do need to address it and tackle this security challenge head on. And finally, Steve, do you think the plans to subsume the role of the Biometrics and Surveillance Camera Commissioner into another function are actually workable or indeed practical? I think anything that's a solution to give people good advice is welcome. I think probably the the downside of subsuming anything in is really can you get the clarity across and the focus it deserves and needs to tackle the problem fully. But even if it was standalone as it is now, it needs to be providing really more than advice 
so that people can act on it, but particularly when you've got government institutions and local government that have to act upon this this advice. If it's just advice, it rarely comes along with any budget allocated. So therefore, it's really a bit of information out there in the ether and not a real good directive that's strong enough for people to act on. So I think however that final structure does be put in place, then people need to be telling people exactly what they should be doing, following it through with more of a mandate than it than it is currently, and then understanding that has budget implications for the people they're saying. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Michelle Cradolfa of Police Crime Prevention Initiatives and also Steve Howarth from Motion for their highly valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsor, The Security Event. The Security Event runs from the 30th of April until the 2nd of May 2024 at the NEC in Birmingham. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.securitymattersmagazine.com where you can access all of our podcasts and also read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can view our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our very popular weekly news bulletin. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming editions of the podcast. You can do so on X, formerly Twitter of course, by using the hashtag securitypod. On that note, make sure you follow us on X at WBMSecMatters and access our LinkedIn page at Security Matters Magazine and website. Please do like and share the podcast content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.